John chapter 12, we'll be reading from verse 9 to 36. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion! Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice came for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we continue in John's Gospel and continue in John chapter 12, we see here the theme of glory. 
And when the Greeks ask to see Jesus, Jesus answers and says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And then later, as he prays to his Father, he prays that the name of his Father would be glorified. And so we see here, in the context of Jesus speaking of his death, and in the context of Jesus calling us to share in his suffering and death, this theme of glory. And we're reminded that one of the reasons John has written this gospel is to reveal the glory of the Son. And we know from the very first chapter and the beginning of of the gospel, he declares there that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. And whose glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And remember that the various signs that Jesus has been performing have signified his glory, have manifested his glory. So this is a gospel that reveals the glory of the Son of God, and we are meant to have the eyes of faith to recognize and see his glory as we read through the gospel. But John also tells us that the reason he wrote this gospel is not only to reveal the glory of the Son, but so that we would believe in him, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, have eternal life. And so this is a gospel written to draw out our faith, to give us eyes to behold who the Son of God is, to turn our hearts to him in faith that we would follow him. And the promise is that if we turn to him in faith, we will have eternal life. We will share in his very life. And because he has conquered sin and conquered death and conquered Satan, we have the assurance of that life. And part of the glory that's revealed is the glory of his victory, the glory of his triumph, triumph over the grave, triumph over the ruler of this world, over Satan. And the theme of triumph is also in this chapter. And here we have John's uh, John's account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowds have been gathering This raising of Lazarus has raised the popularity of Jesus in the eyes of the Jews. Many are believing in him. The the Pharisees are concerned. Look, the whole world is going after him. And so there's a lot of excitement in Jerusalem as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And as he enters, the crowds gather and they spontaneously pick up palm branches. And palm branches were a sign of, of national pride, of national victory. They're patriotic. It's almost like waving, you know, the the Canadian flag. Or if you're in the United States, think of July 4th. You know, the parades on July 4th, waving the Star-Spangled Banner. That's kind of what it's like to wave palm branches. It was was patriotic. It was a sign of, of national pride. And it was an indication that Jesus was coming to bring about a victory for Israel. And a victory, therefore, over Rome. So this is a politically charged moment. Israel's been suffering, the Jewish people had been suffering over the tyranny of the Roman state. And they think now Jesus is coming in to overthrow the Romans. And they go out and they rejoice. And they're singing Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The king of Israel has come. He's going to rule now. He's going to reign for us. Now, Jesus accepts this declaration. Because he goes and he gets a young donkey and he comes in on a donkey. And this is the, the chosen mode of transportation for kings of Israel. This is what kings rode on. Remember as we went through First and Second Samuel, Absalom rode on a donkey. 
He rode on a donkey because he was claiming to be king. So those who are kings ride on donkeys. And Jesus accepted this declaration. Yes, I am the king. That's why he comes in on a donkey. But their expectation of what it means for him to be king of Israel is not the reality of what it means for him to be king of Israel. And the triumph isn't just simply a triumph over the tyranny of the state. Because when Jesus answers the Greeks, his answer is that his victory will be a victory over sin, over death, over Satan. It's a much greater victory. It's a cosmic victory. It's a cosmic triumph. And so he comes in in triumphal entry, but it's going to be a triumph over sin, over Satan. And he's not just king of Israel. He's king of the cosmos. He's king of all the nations. That's the significance of the Greeks who have come to see him. And so as we come to this passage, we need to consider the, the victory that Jesus has won. And we need to consider the, the glory that's on display in this chapter. And Jesus will turn our attention away from an earthly idea or a carnal view of what this victory looks like. It's not simply overthrowing the Romans. It goes much deeper than that. And the nature of the victory is not by means of military conquest. It's not a political victory. It's by means of suffering. It's by means of death. And from an earthly perspective, crucifixion could only signify defeat. It could only signify defeat. It could only signify shame. It, it, was, it was designed by the Romans, and it was used by the Romans to tell the peoples that they had conquered that they were in charge. It was a sign of their power, but it was also a way of humiliating, of shaming those who were crucified. And so the cross is a symbol of utmost humiliation and shame. It's not a sign of glory. To associate crucifixion with glory would be absurd to anybody in the first century. And it certainly wasn't a sign of victory. It could only signify defeat. But here we will see in the glory of the cross... Not, not from an earthly perspective, but from, from the perspective of heaven. No, there is where we see glory. We see glory in the cross. And there in the cross do we see victory. And at the end of our passage, our Lord calls us to walk in the light of this glory. To walk in the light. Jesus is the light. To walk in the light of the cross. And what I want us to consider is, first of all, the glorious light of the cross as we go through this passage. Let's see the glorious light of the cross. But also, let's hear this call at the end of the passage to walk in the light. To walk in the light of the cross. To follow our Lord in the way of the cross. And he says that if we do, we are sons of light. So we we need to consider the glorious light of the cross and then consider what does it mean that we are sons of this light. So first, the glorious light of the cross. And here I want us to consider verses 23 and 24, and then verses 31 and 32. So this is Jesus' answer to the Greeks who say, we want to see Jesus. And we're not told that Jesus goes and meets with them and says, and, you know, shakes their hand and says hello and has a conversation. But when, when Andrew and Philip go to Jesus, Jesus simply says this in response to the Greeks. And don't we also want to see Jesus? We want to see Jesus. And his response to our desire to see him is this, these words. He says, the hour has come, verse 23, 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The Son will be glorified when he dies. In his death, he will be glorified. And if you want to see Jesus, you need to see the cross. You need to see his crucifixion. And our Lord says here, if he dies, he will bear much fruit. And in verses 31 to 32, we see what that fruit is. This is the fruit of his glorious death. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So in the glorification of the Son, in the radiance of his glory, Jesus says we need to look to the cross if we're to see that. And in verses 31 and 32, we see there, in a sense, three rays of light that shine forth from the cross. And I want us to consider these three rays of light. The first is what he says about the judgment of the world. And he says, now is the judgment of the world. And that's important. Because when we think of judgment, we think of the last judgment. When you think, when, when is the world judged? Well, the world will be judged on the last day. That will be the day of judgment. And as you read through scripture, you'll find again and again descriptions of judgment day. Descriptions of this last judgment, of when the world is judged. And in the prophetic descriptions of that day, of that final day of judgment, oftentimes there's, there's certain cataclysmic things that happen. So we're told that on that day, the sun will be, will be darkened. The moon will be, be turned like blood red. There's going to be darkness on that day. The sun is blotted out. We're told that that day of judgment will be a day of, of a great earthquake. Oftentimes that's associated with, with judgment. When God comes to judge the world, the earth will shake. There will be an earthquake. Uh, we're told that when God comes to judge, there'll be a resurrection. And we read this in Daniel chapter 12. When God got, comes to judge, in the end, the dead will be raised. Now, we need to remember that all four of the Gospels in their account of Jesus' death, on the, in the account of, their, of his crucifixion, report these things happening. So the sun was blotted out on Good Friday. That was a dark day. From noon to three in the afternoon, it was dark. The sun was blotted out. We're told the Gospels tell us that when Jesus died, there was a great earthquake. The whole earth shook when Jesus died. Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, the the graves were opened. People came out of the tombs. And what this tells us is that in the death of Christ, we have the last judgment. In the death of Christ, the world is judged. And that's why Jesus says, not on the last day, is the judgment of the world. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of the world. Because I am going to be judged for the world. And remember what John the Baptist says at the beginning of the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, here is the Lamb of God at the Feast of Passover. He's come to Jerusalem and he's come to take away the sin of the world. And he does that by bearing the sin of the world and by being judged for the sin of the world. So Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. And one ray of the glory of the cross is that when Jesus was crucified, sin was judged. And our sin 
was judged on the cross. Now is the judgment of the world. And then he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is a reference to Satan. This is a reference to our our ancient foe, as Martin Luther says in his great hymn, the devil. And Jesus says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. His crucifixion is the defeat of Satan, the defeat of our enemy. He was conquered. He was defeated. And this doesn't happen on the last day. This happened on Good Friday. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now, as we look around the world, as we look at, at, at society around us, we look at the world around us, we, we wonder, is this true? Was, was the ruler of the world cast out? Because it sure looks like he's present and active. And yes, we recognize, you know, the, uh, on an economic and on a political and on a policy level, the, the evil and the injustice of what's going on around us. But remember what the Apostle Paul says, that our war is not against f- flesh and blood. It's a spiritual war. It's against the powers and principalities. It's against the ruler of this world. And so, But how can Jesus then say, now is the ruler of this world cast out? Well, what he means by that is because he has just borne sin, because he bears judgment, the ruler of this world, in a sense, has lost his, he's been disarmed, he's lost his weapon against us. And the weapon of our enemy against us is his accusation. He's the accuser. He's our adversary. He's our accuser, Satan. And his weapon against us is he accuses us of sin. He says, look, you've done this. You've done that. And you deserve death for that. And Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says that the devil has the power of death. The power of death. And he has the power of death because he's the accuser. And he can point to people's sin and say, you've sinned, you deserve death. And we're living in a time right now where people are fearful of death, enslaved to a fear of death, and will do anything because of the fear of death. And our enemy knows that. And our enemy knows he can use the power of the fear of death to manipulate, to control. Now, what our Lord is saying is, On the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out. He was defeated. He was conquered. Because the power that the devil has is in his accusations against us. And remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. He has no basis for his accusation. Now, we're going to hear, you will hear those accusations in your life. But remember, you're in Christ. Remember, your sins were put on him on the cross. The judgment that you deserved, he took. And so Satan has no claim on you. Satan can say nothing to you. You don't belong to him. And therefore, we don't fear death. And we don't fear the one who has the power of death. So that's the second ray of light that shines forth from the cross. And then the third thing we see is in verse 32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, precisely because he bore our judgment, precisely because the ruler of this world has been cast out, we are reconciled to him. We're drawn to him. The devil had a claim over us because we were sinners. But we've been liberated, rescued from the devil. 
We were separated from God because of our sin. We were worthy of judgment and condemnation. That's been dealt with. So now there's no reason for us to be separated from him. And Jesus says, when I am, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, all people to myself. Now, it's important that we recognize here that that word people is actually supplied by our translation. And what Jesus actually simply says is, I will draw all to myself. I will draw all to myself. Now, who is the all that is drawn to our Lord on the cross? Well, we should know this already, because remember what Jesus says in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. The Father draws us to the Son. Now here Jesus is saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men, all people to myself. But the all are those that the Father draws to the Son. Remember, he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. And he says, I won't lose any of those that the Father has given to me. So the all that are drawn to the Son are those that the Father has given to the Son. That's the all. Now it's my prayer that it's, it's each one of us here, sitting in this congregation, that we are the all. And there is a warning in this text, that if we, if we do not walk in the light of the crucified one, if we do not walk in the light of Christ, the darkness will overtake us. And it means that if you haven't put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you still belong to the darkness. You're in the darkness. You're still separated from God because of your sin. You're still under condemnation. You belong to the evil one. And you will share his fate. You will be cast into the lake of fire. And there's a warning in this passage. Now is the time. While you have the light, walk in the light, believe in the light, because there will be a time where you're not in the light and you are lost in the darkness. Now is the time. But our Lord says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, all people to myself. And if we are those who have been so joined to Christ and united to Christ, then we are those who will shine with his light. And that's why he calls us sons of light. If we walk in the light, then we will become sons of light. And this brings me to the second part of our sermon What does it mean to walk as sons of light, if we are sons of light? And here we see that, again, the cross is central. We've seen the glorious light of the cross of Christ, and if, if we are to be sons of light and walk in the light, then we need to walk in the light of the cross. And if we've been united to Christ in the cross, then we need to recognize that we are those who who bear the cross ourselves. And there's two things that our Lord says to us concerning what it looks like for us to be sons of light. The first we see in verse 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So here our Lord is telling us if we are to walk in the light, if we are to be sons of light, then we need to die to ourselves and we need to hate our lives. Now this is strong. And in our, in our contemporary world, this sounds like very bad advice. What do you mean hate your life? 
Can you imagine going to your counselor and the counselor saying, well, what you need to do is hate your life. That's the counsel. But this is what our Lord says. Hate your life in this world. Now here's what that means. It means you need to hate your life in this world. That's what it means. Hate your life in this world. Now, we are programmed. We are programmed from birth to love our life in this world. We are born selfish. And we all know it. And we all fight it. I mean, you just have to look at kids. They're naturally selfish. We know that. But uh, adults are naturally selfish. We're all very selfish. We're, we're concerned with ourselves. And we, we, we love our life in this world. But here our Lord reminds us that it's not about us. And so often, in just the little decisions of our life, when we wake up in the morning, we're kind of thinking, well, all right, what about me? What's happening with me today? And our Lord reminds us here, it's not about you. It's not about you. And if you think of just the nature of our you know, consumer society, the nature of advertising and marketing, the nature of social media, we're constantly being catechized, discipled in loving ourselves and loving our life in this world. Constantly, constantly being discipled that way. But here our Lord says, no, you need to hate your life in this world. And what that means is there is a, there is a sense where we, we die daily to ourselves. We die to sin, we die to ourselves. Now, if I were to just leave it at that, that, would, that sounds like a recipe for despair. But dying to ourselves means living to Christ, living for Christ. And notice that the promise here is you'll keep it for eternal life. Hate your life in this world because you're living for eternal life. And you're living for him. And here we just, it's the simple, a simple reminder that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We belong to Christ. We're his. And we live for him. And it just means simply when you wake up in the morning, your first thought is, I belong to Jesus. I'm his. And he's called me to serve him today. And the life I now live, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in him. And who is he? He's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And the Apostle Paul knew that. You just read through the book of Acts, you read through his letters. There's a man who hated his life in this world, but he kept it for eternal life because he lived for Christ. And as we come to the end of John's gospel, and this won't be for many weeks from now, but there's that well known conversation between Jesus and Peter. And you'll remember that our Lord asked Peter three times Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter insisted, yes, I do, I do, you know that I do. But then our Lord says this at the end of that exchange. This is John 21, verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where where you do not want to go. And then John tells us this, he said, to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And you may know this from church history, that Peter was crucified upside down. That's how he glorified God. But our Lord is warning him, 
Peter, when you were young, you did what you wanted. But I'm telling you, when you're old, you're not going to do what you want. And in fact, you will glorify me. You will glorify God by being crucified. And after saying this, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Peter, you're going to suffer and you're going to die. Follow me. Now this is a reminder to us that our life in Christ is a life that requires us to hate our life in this world and it's a life that calls on us to die, die to ourselves. And Peter knew that and Peter learned that. And our Lord said to him, follow me, follow me in this way of life. And that's what he says in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, walking as sons of light, yes, it means hating our life in this world. But it also means serving him, following him. Now, whenever I see these commands, there's probably a temptation for us to think, okay, serving, serving. And follow, follow, what does that mean? But I always remind myself when I, when I hear these commands, serve me, follow me. We tend to look, okay, serve, follow, what does that look like? What do I have to do? But let's, let's remember the focus here is him. Serve me, follow me. Let's always have Christ before us. Because if we do, we will serve him. We will follow him. As you know him, you'll, you'll, you'll want to serve him. You can imagine doing anything differently than serving him. You'll want to follow him. So sometimes we just think, okay, service, service. I need to be serving, following, following. Remember, it's serve me, follow me. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And then if we think of this question, what does it mean to, to serve him and follow him? Let's remember what our Lord says in his parables and the other gospels. The conclusion to those parables, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers, you do it unto me. And sometimes we can turn this into kind of an abstraction, serving him, following him. But our Lord reminds us to serve him and follow him is to serve one another. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. How do we serve him? We serve one another. And so when, when our Lord said to Peter, follow me, what that looked like for Peter was, and, and we have this at, at the end of the, at the gospel, Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, tend my lambs. Follow me by caring for, for these, caring for others, serving others. And so for us, we're reminded today that if we are sons of light, then we are those who will serve one another, who will care for one another. And let's remember what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. And this is just before he recites that glorious hymn to Christ, celebrating the, the suffering of Christ and the exaltation of Christ in Philippians 2. But before that, he says this. This is what it looks like for us to follow Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You could translate this. Look not only to yourself, but look to others. Look to others. Pay attention to others. 
And so here we're reminded that if we're to serve him and follow him, it means that we need to get to know one another and get to know the interests of others and the needs and the cares and concerns of others. And so that's why it's so important, our fellowship together as a body, as a congregation. We're getting to know one another. And then we're looking to the interests of others. What can I do? How can I help? Praying for others, thinking of others, looking not just to yourself, but to others. And letting others know what your interests are and what your needs are and how they can help you. And I think this is actually where we, we often fail. Uh, many of us are looking out for one another. Many of us are, you know, concerned for others and checking in with others. But we're reluctant to ask for help. We're reluctant to open up to others and let them know our interests. And I was reminded of, the, uh, of this this week because somebody asked me, hey, how, how can we help you? What can we be doing for you and Megan? And I've got no imagination on this front other than a meal, make a meal. That's it. I don't know. I don't know how I can be helped. Well, what's wrong that I don't know how I can be helped? I should know how I can be helped. And so we need to work at being open to others, letting other people know, hey, this is what I'm going through. And this is how you can help me. So it's not just, you know, looking to the interests of others, but letting others know what are your interests? What are your needs? How can they be helping you? And our Lord promises us that when we do this, when we serve him and follow him by serving one another, the Father will honor us. And I look forward to this, that day where, when, when our Lord promises, you know, I, I'm going to pre- prepare a place for you in my Father's house. There are many rooms. But on that day, our Father will receive us and he will honor us. And our, our works of service to one another are, in a sense, storing up for us Jewels, crowns. And I love the thought that on the last day, we'll see each other again. We'll be together in glory. And we'll all be crowned and we'll see the jewels in that crown. It's like, hey, there's that meal that I delivered for you. There it is. And hey, here's that time I came alongside you. I came over, we went for a walk, we prayed for one another. Or here's that time where I just, you know, I helped you put up that fence or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Uh, that, is, that is building up for us honor from our Heavenly Father. And so I think that's related to what Jesus says about keeping our lives for eternal life. Our service to one another, our love for one another, will have an eternal reward. And we'll see it and delight in it on the last day. And now we come to the Lord's Supper. And our Lord has told us that in his death, his glory is manifest. And every time we come to this table, we're, we proclaim his death until he comes. And in this bread, which was broken, which is his body broken and given for us, and in this cup, which his blood, his blood shed for us, we're reminded of the glory of his death, the glory of his cross. And we're also reminded of our calling as his people to walk as sons of light. So as we come to this table, we're reminded that we die to ourselves and we live for him. As we come to this table, we're reminded that we don't just live for ourselves, we belong to one another. And this meal signifies, yes, our communion with Christ, but also our communion with one another. So let's come to this table now, knowing that we are sons of light, we are called to walk in the light, and we are those who, as we die to ourselves, will keep our lives for eternal life.